So good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Evolvepreneur After Hour Show. I am your host, Christine Campbell-Rappin, and I am on a complete and utter mission to help entrepreneurs make a difference, navigate the really messy middle, the startup phase, the relaunch, the plot twists to really create positive impact. And today we're going to be digging deep with our guest who's going to help shed light to the best concepts strategies to help you fast track your business. So please give a warm welcome to our guest this evening, which is Steve Ardiri. And I hope that we're going to have a fantastic conversation because he has a really interesting background. He is someone who really works in the AI space and he views himself as a force multiplier who is really about connecting and illuminating the dots to help you create positive outcome. He's a lifelong learner He's a huge advocate of leveraging capital in the personal branding space, business strategy, executions, multiplying over and over and over because you have strong relationships. Steve, welcome to the program. Wow. What a terrific preamble. And boy, did you do your due diligence, Christine. That really is an excellent synopsis. Uh, that you conveyed. And uh, it's exemplified, of course, not just on LinkedIn, but I also put up a personal website, Force Multiplier Steve Ardiri, to really allow uh, people to, to zero in like you did and your due diligence to get a, you know, a, a really good understanding as a precursor to a podcast, a Zoom call, whatever. Thank you. You're very welcome. So one of the most fascinating things when I when I sit down to talk with my peers, the fellow entrepreneurs, is that clarity piece. And I, one thing that really struck me is the clarity piece. But I want to know, did you always start here? Or what kind of is your journey to really getting clear on the impact and the value that clients seek you out for? Take us through the journey of how it came to be where you are today. Sure, sure. So, um, so my background, I'll just peel back to um, my educational background, which was a geologist. And people are kind of like, say, wow, and now you're an AI. Well, I tell them that, you know, you, ha you kind of train your mind as a tangible science to pattern match. And that's essentially what, you know, statistical AI is all about. I mean, there's other instantiations of it, but it's really pattern matching. So when you go back to your educational college days, and in my case, geology, it was a very easy transition is to take that way of thinking. And it's always been, you know, critical thinking along the way to, you know, to be able to determine what are, you know, the you know, potential outcomes. So that was really the seed corn. And over the decades since college, and it's been many moons ago, uh, there's nothing like having uh, the real world experience where, of course, you learn from failures as long as you don't repeat them too many times. And you learn from those different experiences along the way. And, uh, and that's, you know, to your point, that's what's been my burning desire since high school and, and college to be an intentional learner. So unlike most most people that kind of like plateau out, you know, they're at their job and, you know, pretty secure and they don't have that burning desire because they're just going through the motions um, and they don't really like to push the envelope because that's what startup entrepreneurs do. 
I treat every experience, okay, along the along the journey as an opportunity to learn. And you've got to have this curious growth mindset because the way to, you know, improve your being and intelligence and performance is that you need to nurture, expand, change over time. And that has really been my playbook for, for decades. So a wider rate of interest, and that's how I've accumulated all the expertise in multiple areas. Yeah, it's interesting where how, how all the foundations come together. And I think we don't often start, you know, in, in I call them dominoes, right? That uh-huh. the first store led to something else, led to something else. I went down a rabbit hole. And that that is everybody's journey. And what you wanted in your 20s isn't really what you want. Most uh-huh. people, as time evolves, as our understanding of the world evolves. But I'm curious, when you were young, because you talked about your early days in, in the university scene, did you imagine you would be an entrepreneur and work for yourself at any point? Or when did that light bulb first dawn for you? The light bulb was right after undergraduate because I took one year off to work in uh, oil field services and then finally said, oh, this is really not for me. So, so I said, I think I need to, you know, to, you know, to tack on this. And that's where I went back to get my uh, MBA. And one of the courses that was offered was entrepreneurship. And that essentially, Christine, was really the trigger to say, hmm, this sounds a whole lot better. Let, you know, let me, let me think about this. I, I like what the sounds of it. I didn't operationalize it until about a decade after that, but I did because it was always in the back of my mind. So I played through, you know, oil field services, finally ending up in sales, which I enjoyed the most, technical sales, rather than doing operations side. So that was sort of like finding my calling that I can engage with people, sell deals. I was a top flight salesman for Pfizer Chemical for a number of years, found my way to Boeing, which was interesting because Boeing at that time had this idea of putting together the petroleum gallery, which was a precursor to cloud computing. This was, it's a true story. It was like 1986, 87. And they were saying, well, hey, our, uh, and this is going to definitely date me, our timeshare business is going, you know, is getting eaten up because the oil companies were buying their own prey supercomputers for geophysical processing and reservoir modeling. So they said, well, hey, maybe we can like, you know, you know, put applications on our mainframes and then sell public data to the oil companies. A lot of really good interest and poking around. But in reality, it was the NAH syndrome. So it was a technical success, but a commercial failure. But it was a great lesson learned to say, hey, I, I you know, I was one of the, you know, the, the uh, technology guys, uh, mostly for sales in that endeavor. But that led every, it was a building block that led to ultimately me finding my way to say, well, what I really like to do is be a consultant advisor. And I found that juncture in the in the early 1990s and really locked it down in the mid 90s and it have iterated from there i love it because if you you know that that seed germinates and it did germinate yeah. for 10 years and yeah. that you know that that first idea of a really blank canvas can be yeah. so attractive but when you make that decision and i'm i'm just you know i'm, I'm painting the picture in my head i love the learning i'm curious I think there's a growing need to make a leap and start doing it. And you decided it was consultancy that you would start with. How did you go about finding your first clients? Right. Great. Terrific question. So 
I found my first client um, after moving from Houston, because there was no need to live in Houston anymore. So we, you know, we said, well, we really like the pack Northwest. So we literally drove up in like late 88, planted, you know, our flag as pack, as a Northwesterners then. And then it was really kind of like, you know, milling around, you know, uh, to do, to how to really lock in, to realize these, these entrepreneurial desires. So I did do a small, unsuccessful business being a reseller of some of the first digital video editing uh, so, uh, uh, um, systems, um, which was interesting to me. 3D animation, stuff like that. But I started to really say, well, listen, you know, you've got to get out there and network. I've always been a, a good networker, but now as a very accomplished power networker, uh, you know, that was sort of like the first forerunner. So you're joining the Washington Technology Association, other types of, and they, they were there. They're not nearly as vibrant as they have been for the past few years. But that got me dialed in. And sure enough, I landed at a Washington Research Foundation, which was not their tech licensing group, but it was a entity set up to take um, university professors at UW, some of the, you know, the work that they're doing, and look for commercial commercialization angles rather than just the tech licensing. And I said, wow, this is really quite interesting. So I got involved in some of the projects. So we actually provided funding. And then, you know, guidance similar to what accelerators, incubators do, you know, have been doing today. Right. And I and I work with a number of them. So I'm very familiar with it. But this was like 1990, 1994 or something like that. So I, you know, that was really starting to get me on the on the uh, uh, on the inroads to doing this. And then I started to find gigs out of that, you know, startup gigs where I can plug in as an advisor you know, uh, work the Northwest, getting, uh, putting in the first digital asset management system at Microsoft when they had their CD-ROM titles, which is a fun six-month project. So they had two outside guys, two inside guys. And then, uh, you know, you know, uh, Boeing was an engagement. Then I worked Silicon Valley, some engagements. And then I started to say, you know, heck, what am I limiting myself to regional if I really like the particular software startup, I'll reach out, make a make an effort to make a connect, and that's what I started doing across all parts, you know, New York, you know, Atlanta, all parts of the U.S. And then in the early 2000s, started to do it in Europe. And since that time, that 25 years, I think the count is something like 70 startups, with about a quarter of them in Europe. And now, you know, I've added India. And uh, so it's really now a global footprint that I operate on. I love it. But to walk me through, because this is a fascinating thing. You know, you, you've worked in the startup space for a lot of years. I actually started my early career in the world of startup and tech startup. Right? Interesting enough. So we, we share that in common. And I'm curious, you know, how do you think startup owners have changed over time? And when you're coming to them, knocking on the door saying, here I have some ability to fast track, expedite, or accelerate. What do they say? And how has it shifted? What what talk us a little bit about that? Because to have longevity in this is a huge kudo and give you props for that. But I imagine 
that, yeah, again, what was before in 1994 to 2022, are they, how is it changing? What, what's going on in that landscape? Boy, that's a meaty, terrific question. And I love that you asked that because it, uh, it really, the dynamics has definitely changed. And I'm going to go through the, the punch list on, on how that happened. Uh, first of all, um, the willingness to want to do a startup has just intensified, you know, logarithmically. Um, and I like it over the last few years, especially, um, cause I, I do some selective mentoring, but you know, in my startup portfolio, I've got, um, more of it now is skewing to millennials and Gen Z as well. So I'm the, the white, you know, the silver haired advisor dude with all this experience. And I used to say like a few years ago, if you can, if a baby boomer like me can hang with the millennials, you still got game. And it's even more challenging for these Gen Zers who are even more critical. And the irony is one of them in particular, um, studio intake, uh, Jack is like, I don't know, 23, 24, Nikki, uh, is like, she dropped out of, of college because she wasn't getting any value. And there, I brought them into five of my gigs, including Better Meal AI, where they're now doing growth hacking for converting the wait list of people. And I'll get more at the Better Meal later. But, but the storyline here is the younger demographic, now the Gen Z, you, the millennials want, you know, used to say, I'll work five years and do a startup. Now these Gen Z kids are saying, screw working for five years, being a, co a cog in the wheel. I'm going to go for it. And if I fail, I'll just pick myself up and do it again. So you're seeing, a, you would not have seen this 10 years ago, either. maybe not even five, but now the fires are burning with intensity and everybody, not everybody, more and more people really want to say, hey, whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or even more, they want to plug, you know, plug in. And, and it's, you know, for people my age and, and younger, a little bit younger, it's hard for the older demographic. And I'll tell you why. Um, when you work, you know, 30, 35 years, which is harder to see these days, right? Um because a lot of the bigger companies are squeezing out the 50s and 60s, like kicking them to the curb and say, you know, go retire, right? Yet, you know, so, so and in mid management's getting crunched, right? Uh, as the, as I talk a lot about the future of work, robotic process automation, just automation in terms of doing procedural work. So if you do procedural work, whether it be accounting, even legal, right? I mean, you still need legals, you know, uh, paralegals, but more and more of that is being addressed. So it's really, you know, for a lot of the, what I call the previous, you know, baby boomers and Gen Gen X, they're now a little bit more aware, like saying, well, maybe I need a option B. Maybe I should think about maybe having a plan B to, you know, rather than just because big companies don't care. You're a piece of cattle, you're a cog in the wheel, and they're just gonna, you know, so unless you're really, you know, performing a high performer, you're totally expendable. And, but back to my point on, on why it's harder, it really comes down to what I paraphrased before. A lot of these folks, you know, 
40s and above, if they didn't apply themselves, okay, you know, to be curious and be a learner, when they take that logo off the back, what the heck are they really going to do? You know, they say, well, I'm going to be an advisor, consultant. And I, and I, I get a lot of this, right, over the last 15, 20 years. I said, really? You think you can just plug right in, right, automatically? I said, lots of luck. 99% of these folks will fail. I mean, not, not to say that they're good at what, they may be a great salesman for IBM or a marketing person, but the dynamics to be a startup player, it's like, it's like um, CrossFit. You got to be in tip top shape mentally and physically, and you got to bring your A game every day of the week. I think it's so true because that is definitely one of the things I agree with you. The, the barriers to entry to get into the space of entrepreneurship is unlike any other time in precedent in history. And because of that, yes, it is an incredibly exciting time. And yet, I, you know, in my world as, as a business coach who, who works with early stage entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that have plateaued and are struggling from that early growth to you know the expedited next level, if you will, the hardest challenge is well, what comes next? And and from that point on, it takes more than an idea to create a business. So in your role and all of the you know reasons people would contract you, I'm curious if you could articulate to me, what does it take to be successful to beat the odds, to be that 1% that, that has got the foundations, not just the idea, because ideas are the easy bit, executing, implementing, and making a scalable success, which is where you come into play, is the difference maker. Tell me what it takes to succeed in today's world. Right. And I'm going to use, rather than talking the abstract, I'm going to use Better Meal AI, which which is a phenomenal instantiation of what it really takes. So uh, uh, so Swathi Kumar um, founded this company a few, uh, a few years ago. And, um, and it's really addressing um, gut health. The, the the talk between you know the crosstalk between gut and food and uh like other problems but you know um in in disease management health apps right uh and gut health uh kits are pretty complex for the average person so most people really don't have they have superficial knowledge about you know food compounds the bioactives and they have no clue on understanding the biological connections between gut and food. So, so, so what Swathi did, and actually being kind of um, herself going through some like pre-type two diabetes, she said, "Well, I can't get answers from nutrition, the right answers from nutritions and GI, you know, uh, uh, doctors." And she felt frustrated. So that was really an impetus to say, I'm going to, um, you know, construct an offering where I can make connections between the microbiomes and the bioactives in food. So what it is, is she, we now have a, a methodology to where a patient can upload their blood, blood temp. I mean, everybody, well, most everybody gets, you know, an annual blood temp panel test that measures your glucose, you know, other types of, you know, you know, breakdown in the, in the chem panel. And, uh, that, that's what 
you know, step one, you upload it to the cloud. We're using AWS. And then the AI that she wrote predicts what are the viable biomarkers. Now, through this um, huge clinical trial that she did in India, because it was easier to do it in India than it was in the U.S., and she's also from India. She's been here 10 years. Uh, she got a great clinical partner in Lifeline Hospitals where, and this is going to astound you, the number of participants were half a million. And when we talk to VCs and potential partners, their eyes bug out and say, how did a fledging startup be able to pull off something that Series B funded companies don't have? They just make it up with these ginned up you know, clinical studies. But that was that was the one side of it. The other side is that we also map more than 460,000 bioactive compounds in food to, you know, to analyze what are the unique biomarkers. And the findings were uh, 95% said they felt better within 24 hours of nutritional treatment and guidance. And this was the proof positive with an 82% success of discovery of biomarkers and bioactives for recovery. We're the first ones to do it. There's a lot of skepticism out there, but the proof is in the pudding. So after we analyze the biomarkers, the secret sauce is that we match the microbiomes with the bioactives in food, and this results in a determinist impact on gut health. So for the folks that have been frustrated with diabetes, thyroid, PSOS, Cialtic, IBD, and we're adding other, you know, when we can get around to like Crohn's disease and stuff like that, this is huge. And it's a great step forward because um, uh, we're making it easy for the, for, for the user because, you know, we have an app uh, both on Android and, and iPhone and users can better understand what the makeup is in the bio foods and we can tailor the nutritional treatments for them. And, and that's why we, we're, we've got a budding uh, user base for direct-to-consumer that these young kids uh, at Studio Intake are growth hacking. Because we have like a wait list of 60,000. What a great problem to have, right? But we just have been stretched to the max. So we have that revenue stream. And then I'm coming in as a chief business officer to really buff up the B2B to C partnership with healthcare providers, hospitals, and some corporate wellness. And we will be converting our first pilot to a paid customer, which is NHS in October. And then we have like three or four other hospitals, you know, you know, right on the heels of that. And, uh, and that's, you know, so to answer your question, um, really nailing the product market fit. But what I've done for Swathi, uh, when I took, when I went from advisor to CBO role, it comes back to, I'm pulling through my relationship capital to people that I know that can add immediate value. And the scourge of startups is that they don't know who to hire, right? So with me, it was an easy, so Swathi had the technical team down, but I'm adding now the marketing, biz ops, you know, social media growth hacking. And now we're really starting to click on all cylinders. I love to hear a success story. And, and so do I'm sure all of our listeners, because it, we know it's a tough road. We, we know that the, um, it's not always that case. So I want to flip the coin and say, okay, so that's a great success story. What did you learn from your biggest 
implosion? What I learned from the biggest implosion is, is team chemistry. When you don't have that team chemistry really set, it's sort of like a soccer team, right? Where, where the D-backs can, you know, they can read the midfielders, read the forwards. You know, you've got you've to execute as a team. And that is probably the, you know, besides running out of funding, it's, it's, you know, team dynamics is, you know, the difference between success and failure. If you don't, and, 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 and you've got to really allow A players to perform, right? They don't want to be micromanaged. If they want to be micromanaged, go work for a global 2000 company. But if you, if you got real, I mean, it, that's why you're select, okay? And I didn't select, you know, I mean, in this case, I'm not select, but I'm getting pretty much carte blanche from Swathi at Better Meal to say, Steve, I totally trust you with your instincts and guidance here. And I have them, you know, I mean, sure, I've made a lot, but now I've really refined it to the point where bringing in passionate, and the passion has to be there, by the way. I, if without the passion, forget about it. And the other thing is when you're signing up for this, as I mentioned, it's like, you know, CrossFit training, you know, you can't pretend and just go through the motions. You got to step in and deliver your role. And we're very big on communication. Like we, you know, really informing them into elements of this is what's going on on the VC front. These are our deal flows. Keep the information flowing because they want to be participating. They want to they want to know what's going on. The more you share, you know, bottom up, top down, it's got to be a duality. The more they're going to really be enthralled and say, wow, I am really dialed in and I'm having fun. And that's what we want to really foster. We, we do. And I've, see, I've seen it. You know, it is a break point. It is the, the, this, the team that starts you in startup is not often the team that leads you through high growth because the skills are different. The team dynamics are different and communication stops being easy because it's not all five of us sitting around a table or three of us or 10 of us. It just right. gets harder. And that's where I do think it's great to bring in an expert such as yourself to really help bring, I'm going to say the seasoned voice of, of, of computer experience, because you can't buy that. And yes, you have this great gumption to figure things out, but this is about accelerating and that's what's just an important thing. So I'm curious because you said you've taken on this role. It's a BD role. Are you still looking for clients on the consulting side or is this what the next chapter looks like for you? So I did reformulate. So right on my personal website, I have a two-tiered system. I've got tier one gigs with a operation role like chief business officer. That's where I'm putting a minimum 40 hours a month. It could, it could step up to 50 or 60. I personally work with 200 hours a month because I'm just, you know, maniacal in a really good way, not in a, a negative connotation <laughs> way. And I really, I can work at, uh, like three or four X, the normal person, this is what you learn. Okay. And I really, I talk about the flow state in one of my posts there, you know, I know how to hack the flow state, right? So I can work at a very, very high threshold and get, you know, three to four X done of a, of a, of a, of a good worker. So, um, you know, the thing about advisor, that's why, you know, this is what sort of like the journey has been. I've been looking for these. It takes a while to bubble up. And I'll tell you the story when I, uh, as far as better meal. So yes, they went through an accelerator, a very good one, Expert Dojo at SoCal, which is a growth accelerator. 
So they got their initial 100K, got some really good guidance from Brian McMahon, Genevieve LaMarshall, uh, Charlotte Triplett. Um, and uh, and uh, that was really good experience. And they kind of, you know, both all those three people also see some similarities. Because Swathi is a data scientist, and she'll admit she just didn't have the right, you know, seat. You know, they look at her and say, brilliant data scientist, but where's your guy, right? Where's your chief business officer? So when I bumped to this role, and then brought in the people, they were just saying, oh my God, this is like perfect. So when I moderated Shark Tank at AI Med, an, ex- an excellent uh, medical show, mostly you know for clinician driven, uh, she was one of the presenters, I was the moderator. Uh, I said to her after, boy, I really, you know, I'm really locked on to what you're doing. I believe it. Part of the reason is that, you know, I, I'm still within five pounds of my high school weight, which was a long time ago. Okay. But I've, I've always worked out. I've never been out of shape. I, you know, I mean, I was weaned on the Mediterranean diet, right? One of the best diets out there. So this was really easy for me to get passionate about gut health. And since my focus is neuro AI, I've been on this beeline as far as the brain gut access connection. So this fit right into my wheelhouse of neuro AI for digital health, brain health, gut health, wellness. It just really came together as the perfect nexus. So that was that was the frame that really kind of like, you know, congealed things in a big way. And uh, when I was at uh, uh, AI4 Vegas uh, about a week, last week it was, it seems like it was like three weeks ago. Uh, you know, you've got to really pick your spots and shots. When you go to these events, you know, when you're not a presenter, I'm usually a speaker. I just, I, you know, speak at pre-pandemic. I'll get to it in 2023, but I was speaking at like six events a year. Uh, and I do a lot of podcasts like we're doing now, right? But when you go as, a, as an attendee, you got to really pick your targets and make those meetings, you know, actionable. And the two follow-up calls we had today from two of my best meetings, they both like panned out beautifully to next steps. So, you know, you know, you've got to move on firm ground, but you got to move with some speed and your precision has to be really razor sharp, you know, on, you know, it's not just doing, you know, going through the motions and how many calls you, but do you really, is this, is this partnership really going to, you know, add, uh, you know, another uh, avenue for revenue generation? I mean, we have the duality with the B2C and the B2B2C, right? But you want to really get plugged in to where you can be the component for, you know, complementary partnerships. And we're really starting to hit stride here in spades. So, so while we're still looking to close off the rest of the pre-seed funding, we're pretty confident that with these enterprise deals, once we close them, it's not going to be a problem. This is mid-October. And once we hit a million AR in the D2C with 20,000 users and a million AR with four hospitals, um, we're going to be able to close 4 million C-plus round at a minimum of 15 million pre-money. And that's like knocking it out of the park. And that money 
will probably be enough with organic growth to take us to the magic number of 10 million ARR. Okay. When you get to 10 million ARR, you like say, you get on the radar. Like somebody's going to poke around and say, wow, maybe we can maybe acquire this, this, this juggernaut here, that emerging juggernaut. Would we take it? The fallacy in the game, mostly from VCs, is they don't want to come in pre-seed, plus it doesn't do anything for them. And even in seed rounds, right? Pre-seed is less than a million. Seed is like a million to seed plus is like, you know, up to three or four. They really are most comfortable at at Series A when they do when the when the opportunities de-risk enough. But that doesn't guarantee success, right? Nine out of ten startups still fail. So the fallacy out there, it's all about you know, being frugal like Swathi has been. And if you can, you know, get to 10 million ARR, just 5 million people are going to say, how could you do that? You can't. Really? Wait and see, right? Not to say that we're going to raise, if we're really doing, if we're growing at a 80 degree tra- or, you know, 80 degree trajectory rather than a 45 degree angle. Yeah, we may raise a Series A and exit for 250 rather than 100 million. These are the dynamics that you have to um, be aware of. And more importantly, it's all about balancing business strategy with smart execution. You do that and you don't, you know, have too many. I mean, if you talk about uh, too many tax along the way or retrenching or pivoting, I think pivoting is a joke, Right. You're you're wasting time and you're wasting a lot of money. And, you know, when people say, oh, I pivoted, well, what the hell's wrong with you? Why are you such a moron that you couldn't see what was coming down the pike? So your situation awareness was really flawed. And uh, and that's really why you need, you know, a savvy chief business officer along with the rest team to really keep you dialed in on the pulse. This is a beating pulse. You've got to be on the right cusp every day and execute on that accordingly. And that's going to really increase your chances. I love it. So guys, there's some huge nuggets in this episode. One is what's the value of bringing in a seasoned partner to help guide you through the challenges that startups face, somebody who's got experience behind this, but truly it is about accelerating decision-making, having great teams, and really at the same time, knowing where your direction true north is. So Steve, I really want to thank you for coming in to chat with us today. This is a wrap on another incredible episode of Evolvepreneur After Hours. And just before you go, if you like this episode, we'd be really grateful for a five-star review. And I would consider, please ask somebody you know who wants to be featured, hear from some other great entrepreneurs. Be sure to subscribe to this channel, be here for future episodes. And until next time, if you are an entrepreneur, start your next great idea today. No time like the present. Thanks for being with our guest today, Steve. A pleasure, Christine. Really enjoyed the the uh, dialogue and um, and the conversation. Awesome. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye.